Hello and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hello, Anita. Hi, Terry. This week's guest is in a unique position to compare experiences in back-to-back crisis-level hospitalizations, one for mental health treatment when she was suicidal and one for an emergency surgery. Both experiences were scary. Both were life-saving. But many things and too many things about the experiences were significantly different in ways that say an awful lot about the role that stigma continues to play in mental illness. Here now is Katie giving her voice to depression. Katie says when she was young, she suffered from both anxiety and obsessive-compulsive disorder. I still have both now, but that started when I was quite young. In 2008, I had a manic episode with psychosis and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, I was stable for five years on medication And then I was weaned off the medication and then I had a second episode, but they call it a mixed features um, episode where I was very depressed, having suicidal thoughts and I had manic symptoms. So I had a ton of energy. I was hyper talkative. I was oversharing all of these things, but combined with being very depressed and wanting to harm myself. So that was in 2018. So exactly 10 years after my first episode, actually to the date. Katie says she had another stable period after that. But the stresses of being a frontline mental health worker and planning her wedding during the pandemic contributed to a worsening of her own mental health. It was extremely stressful planning the wedding during that time. We had already pushed it back, so I was just going ahead with it. So I was very, very stressed out and leading into a manic episode. And then following my wedding, about two months later, I fell into a very deep depression. And I had a lot of guilt around it because I was newlywed. So I'm supposed to be happy and cheerful and in this wedding bliss, but I was super depressed. I was having thoughts of ending my life. I had very poor motivation. I wasn't doing anything besides getting up and going to work and then coming home and masking my depression 
Katie reached that dangerously hopeless place where she believed ending her life was her best option. She made elaborate plans to follow through. Fortunately, about a month before the day she'd chosen, she shared her deadly secret. I broke down and told my sister everything that I was experiencing. She called my husband, who I was hiding it from, because, again, I felt very guilty because we were newlyweds. Her loved ones, who would not, in fact, have been better off without Katie, as her mind and depression had convinced her, took immediate steps to protect and support her, including contacting her psychiatrist. He basically told me that I had to go, and that if I didn't show up the next day to that hospital, because this all happened later in the evening the night before, that he would put me on an involuntary hold so that I would be brought there by the police. So my husband drove me there the very next morning. And once I was assessed because of my suicidal thoughts and the way I presented, I think that it was probably protocol to make me involuntary because at that point when you're involuntary, you're not allowed to wear your clothing. You have to wear the hospital gowns. And I think they were nervous of me trying to harm myself in other ways, if I had access to other ways. But I was not going to try to leave. In fact, Katie stayed on the mental health unit for nearly two weeks, receiving needed treatment for her depression. And when I was hospitalized, the antidepressant I was put on helped me like within within the like it takes about three to four weeks for antidepressants to work but i felt the effects pretty quickly with that hospitalization i was able to journal out my thoughts there was a therapist there who i talked to so there was a lot in place so i was able to crawl myself out but when i was going through that depression i didn't reach out like, I didn't call it to get a therapist. I minimized the way I was feeling. And then when it started to get to the point that I knew it was severe, I was pretty content with the fact that that's how I'm going to live. Like, this is now my life. It's one of depression's hope-killing lies that the way you feel when in that dark hole, as Katie calls it, is the way you'll always feel. Next week, we're going to look deeply into Katie's descent into that place that makes death seem like a preferable option. And we thank her again in advance for her willingness to be so forthcoming to inform and help others. But for today, we're focused on her hospital experiences. Because three short months after her discharge from the psychiatric ward, Katie was back in the hospital, again, for life-saving care. But there are many differences between those two experiences. So New Year's Eve, I was skipping rope, jumping rope, and I felt something. I was I worked out four, four to five times a week. So I felt something pull in my back, but I thought I strained a muscle. Fast forward, on January the 10th, I woke up completely paralyzed from my waist down. So... I ended up having to go to the hospital by ambulance. And once I was there, I was diagnosed with a condition that is 
severe and they told me that I can't decline it because ethically they're responsible to do the surgery because it's life-saving. And then I was told before the surgery that I had a 25% chance of not surviving or if I did survive, my deficits would be permanent. I was paralyzed on the left side of my body. I just couldn't move the right side of my body because the pain level, meaning that I would be in a wheelchair. So that was a quarter chance of this all occurring if I didn't get surgery within 24 hours, which I did get the surgery and I didn't end up with any deficits very luckily. Um, and at that point I was hospitalized for one week because I had to start to walk on my own. In what ways were those two hospitalizations similar? Both hospitalizations and they occurred three months apart. So it was very easy for me to compare them. So the first thing was the severity. My mental health admission to me, that was a life-saving admission because I don't think I'd be alive if I was not admitted at that time. For the surgery admission, also very serious because I would be dead if I didn't go as well. However, during my surgical hospitalization, it was treated that way. I was told how lucky I am to be alive, Thank goodness I called the ambulance when I did. I wouldn't be alive if I didn't. Thank God I reached out for help. Whereas my mental health admission, it was more lackadaisical. It was, I'm happy you got help, but how long are you going to stay in the hospital for? And do you need to be hospitalized? Because now you're voluntary and should you not be discharged by now? But with the surgical hospitalization, the charge around her discharge was notably different. And the only reason I was discharged is because I really pushed the discharge. My family and my support system thought it was too soon because I personally pushed being discharged because I felt gross, essentially, because I wasn't able to shower and things like that. So I just wanted to get home. But for my mental health hospitalization, it was outside sources pushing me to be discharged when I knew that I wasn't ready to be discharged. Which ties into what Katie calls the recovery part. With the surgery, when I was discharged, I had a lot of support, which I think I would have benefited from, from the mental health discharge as well. But I did need someone 24 seven for the surgery discharge for the first week. So people were taking shifts and organizing to be there for me, which I think would have been similar discharge planning for my mental health admission. I needed people there so that I could talk to people and be surrounded by people and not be alone still with my thoughts. And after my surgical admission, I was off for three months because I had to be on bed rest 
then I had to go into rehab to rehabilitate. For the mental health piece, there's a rehabilitation process too. And that was very overlooked. So I was walking every day because walking is very therapeutic for me post my mental health discharge. But there was an expectation that I needed to be productive. That what are you doing with your day? And don't you think it's time to return to work? There was a push for me to return to work because the idea was that if I returned to work, I would be productive and I would have more a sense of fulfillment. But I was in no condition to return to work. I needed to rehabilitate after my discharge. I was in the hospital for two weeks for my mental health admission. You need some time to rehabilitate to get back to being stable because when you're discharged, you're not a hundred percent. When you're discharged, you're like 60%, 70%. So I still needed time. You also brought up the concepts of shame and guilt and how those are different in those two hospitalizations. And when I was actually on the floor for mental health, the first thing that happened was a staff member. And again, I don't think this was ill-intentioned, but they came in and introduced themselves to me. It was a, it was a staff member there and a nurse. And they said to me, do you have shoes? And I said, no, I, I don't have shoes. They, they took my shoes. I just have these socks. And he said, no, do you have shoes yourself? And I said, yes. And he said, do you have clothes? And I said, yes. And he did, said, do you have a place to sleep at night? And I said, yes. And he said, you have no idea how blessed you are. And the fact that this is what you're thinking is terrible considering how much people don't have. The hospital staff treating her for her back injury responded very differently. I had people telling me that I was a miracle, that I had a serious thing happen to me, and that I persevered, that I was strong. Everything I received from the staff members was so encouraging. They would build me up constantly when they had to change my bandages. They would tell me how amazing I am and how when you leave here, continue to fight, continue to be strong. Um, it was very, very, it was an encouraging atmosphere. And the visitations also could take place during the day. And there were people there all the time. All the time I had visitors. Those visitors and all the people who called and texted Katie during her surgical stay were able to offer support and encouragement because they knew she needed it. They'd been informed of her accident. But when she was admitted for psychiatric care, that was kept secret. Nobody knew about it besides my parents, my in-laws, and my my siblings, like my my in-laws, family too, and my husband. 
So those are the only people that were aware. And because it was over a holiday and I couldn't go to the holiday, people were told I was working. So when I confronted that later and I said, well, why would you not tell people where I was? I was told, well, I didn't know if you wanted people to know. And I didn't feel comfortable telling people because it's private. It's private information and it's up to you to share it. However, the day I was brought to emergency department, I received an abundant amount of text messages and phone calls that I had to give my husband my phone because I was in no shape to lay there and respond to anything. And everybody was aware, uncles, aunts, everybody. And not one person asked me, do you want to keep this private? Do you want us to share this information? That wasn't asked. But for my mental health admission, it was, well, we thought you wanted to keep it private. Would you have wanted that extended support? I would have appreciated it. Honestly, I think it would have helped me a lot because I was feeling so guilty and embarrassed and like a burden about that admission. So I think if people would have reached out to me, I think it would have helped me a lot mentally um, move forward and know that I have support and that people aren't seeing me as a burden. They're seeing me as somebody who needed help. I think it would actually, I think it would have helped a lot. So Terry, the experience that she had really does illustrate why I think time and again, I I hear from clients who have severe depression, they say that they wish that they had something like cancer Hmm. because the differences in how people react, the level of support, the assumptions that people make about what you're doing to try to get better, it's all different. It's so different. It is. Yeah. And I wish it weren't that way. I I really hope partly because of what we're doing and better education and people just beginning to realize that severe clinical depression is the mental health equivalent of having cancer. And I say, I say that so that people really get it. (laughs) If they're going Mm -hmm. to get the, get that analogy, I hope that they're going to get it from that. And there was something else, you know, listening to her experience that I wanted to say that, I do work with a lot of medical professionals who have admitted to me that they do have a hard time switching gears um, with patients who come into, you know, the emergency room or the hospital who are suicidal because in their day to day, the vast majority of people who are coming in are victims of, you know, a a medical catastrophe, an accident, a, a medical trauma, and they're fighting to stay alive. And so I think sometimes they say it's really hard when they see somebody who looks healthy, you know, physically healthy and wants to die. It's it's really hard for them to switch the gears and recognize that what depression is, how it's been working on this person for so long to get them to this place where it's a, a mental health emergency and use what they've been taught and use their their empathy to try to understand what what it was like for that person to to try to live with really severe depression for a period of time because they can't really fathom why would somebody who looks healthy want to die they've been spending 
most of their days trying to get people who don't look physically healthy and who want to live, they're trying to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. So they do admit it's hard to switch the gears. It's hard to understand it. And things are fast paced. They don't always give um, people who come in with a mental health emergency that same level of compassion and support and time, you know, that they that they need. I think often of that, you know, question, how could you be suicidal? You have so much blank, right? So many Uh blessings. You have a this, you have a that. As if those are protective factors against illness, Uh including your your metaphor, cancer. And one of the best explanations for understanding that is you would never say to someone with asthma, what do you mean you can't breathe? Uh There's so much air out there. Exactly. It's an right? access it's like, issue. It's, it's an, an access, access issue. issue. That's right. If you can't access, you know, feeling good about yourself or hope or the belief that things will get better or that, you know, yeah, it's an access issue. If you can't access hope, then yes. it makes complete sense that you are feeling hopeless. So just because you can access hope doesn't mean, and other people can access it, doesn't mean that people with depression can, certainly at certain moments in their lives. And we're going to get into next episode again with Katie, but we're going to use it as a a jumping point or starting point to talk about suicidal ideation. But for people who truly, deeply, completely believe that their loved ones would be better off without them, that's a hard thing to unthink. Mm -hmm. And Oh, I, I remember literally on live television once when I was doing an interview being asked about depression and the co-host said, you know, hey, if depression can lead to suicide and if you have depression, how come you haven't tried to kill yourself? And I was like, what, what? are you doing asking me this question live? And and I had to think so fast because I didn't want anybody listening who may have attempted to think I was saying, well, because I just controlled myself or something better. And I just said, my depression hasn't brought me there. My depression Mm -hmm. has never convinced me that people would be better off without me. Mm -hmm. It convinced me that I was always going to feel that way, that I was worthless, all the, you know, top 10. But Mm -hmm. not that one, thank goodness, because I think that'd be really hard to fight. And I won't say more about this, because this will be next week's discussion, which I want to warn people, if you want to hear that discussion, I think knowing you know, you, Anita, and also Katie as a therapist and as a a very articulate person. I think it will be a very good and important discussion. But if you're not up for that, please skip next week's episode or go into the archive and pick one of the other 400. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to bring up one other point that Katie made, which was the privacy issue. And I thought it was really interesting that no one asked her if she wanted the world to know, her world to know, when she was in the hospital for her back surgery, mm-hmm. but they kept private her her mental health admission. I think there are a lot of people, frankly, who wouldn't want people to know that they were suicidal, that they were getting care. I also think there are a lot of people who wouldn't want someone to know they were in the hospital for COVID or back surgery or anything else. So mm-hmm. I think hospitalization, I think private things can be private, but I think the lesson from hearing Katie explain that was we got to ask, mm-hmm. you know, for both, you know, for both her back and for her mental health admissions. 
do you want people to know? Who do you who do you want me to tell? Who would you like to know? Who would you want to be able to have access to you in calling you and supporting you or visiting you if that was an option? Mm-hmm. That's a really really good point. Yeah, I thought it needed to be made. Okay, so next week we're excited that you're going to be hearing from Katie again and going into more detail about what led to her mental health hospitalization. And just a shout out to Katie as a fellow therapist saying thank you so much for sharing your personal experience about this. It helps to reduce stigma. It helps, I think, everyone to know that even therapists struggle with this kind of stuff too. Hmm. All right. Thank you, Anita. And we'll be back next week. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression, or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen.